This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are expecting the labor force survey results from the month of July tomorrow. That's going to be highly anticipated. We want to know what kind of impact heading into stage three had on the job situation here in BC. And it also gives us a, a very good indication kind of of where we are at with this potential economic recovery from the past couple of months. So let's get a bit of a preview on that now. Brendan Bernard joins us, economist with Indeed.ca. Brendan, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. What do you think we're going to be hearing tomorrow? Well, uh, you're exactly right that this is really going to be all about how much, what level of tailwinds do we have from the ongoing reopening across the country between mid-May and, sorry, mid-June and mid-July. So uh, during this crisis, we've seen the service sector, accommodation and food services especially, just get hit really hard. But things are coming back now, and so uh, there's going to be some progress. But how much and how far are we going to remain down from February levels? Do you expect to see improvements? Like, what about in BC in particular? Uh, so, so BC actually um, saw a bit of a faster bounce back in terms of that uh, accommodation and food service sector uh, than other parts of the country. But just in general, I think people are getting more relaxed um, with uh, going out and about and living their normal lives. And I think that's going to have an effect. But I think one of the questions is, uh, is that going to match the pace that we saw earlier on uh, in the reopening in May and June? And that's where I'm a little less confident. So are you, I think a lot of people were hoping we would see like a V-shaped economic recovery. Are you concerned that it might be a little more U-shaped? Well, I guess you can have a V-shape, but it might be a partial V. Uh, so, you know, you, you have this really sharp downturn and then a pretty noticeable bounce back. And that's what we saw in May and June, but it was incomplete. And so and, and I think that's the more likely scenario where, you know, we we have had this really sharp uh, downturn, a pretty no- noticeable bounce back, but an incomplete one. And getting back all the way where we were entering this pandemic is going to be the tough part. So, you know, from what you see on Indeed.ca, where are the hotspots? What kind of jobs are out there? Uh, so we see uh, job postings pick up in a, a few sectors. And one of, the, one of the common themes is that they're all sectors where you have to go into a workplace of some kind. Um, so we've seen big rebounds uh, uh, for job postings in construction, um, uh, certain areas of retail, uh, uh, like personal services, like uh, dental services and personal care, like uh, uh, hairstylists and massage therapists. So, so areas of the economy where, uh, where there was a, a temporary shutdown, but there was a lot of pent-up demand that as things have opened up, have, have caused employers to look to hire again. 
Right. But I guess it's just, will it hold is the big question, right? When do you think that we will finally feel the full results of this? Like the fall, maybe? Well, I, I, so there, there are a few things uh, to, to keep in mind. Um, one is, I think Canadians are all processing the, the data that's coming out by, from the pandemic. And what I mean by that is, over, over the past few months, we're gradually relaxing the kinds of activities uh, that we're uh, that we're engaging, and this is partially governments uh, opening things up, but it's also just Canadians uh, going about living their daily lives and gradually sort of te- testing, okay, what's safe is and what's not, and 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 people are do, doing these, and as as, as they're uh, going about and trying to get ba- get back to normal, we're seeing, okay, uh, does this activity look safe? Can we do these kind of activities? without uh without causing a kick up in the pandemic and when when something when something like uh the return to patio restaurants doesn't result in uh in uh, a deterioration in the public health situation then people see that and they say okay well now i can start going out and engaging in those activities and so that that's kind of this uh uh, gradual trial and error dance that uh, the Canadian public has been uh, doing the past few months. I think, though, the, the real test is going to come uh, in the winter, where you know we know that uh, indoors is uh, just a different ball game in terms of uh, the pandemic, and so how uh, how things react there, and what happens to the job market uh, when the weather turns, um, is, is a real uncertainty. I guess also what happens when the government programs start to kind of trickle off or run out. That, that, that's also a big point. Um, so, so, so we know that CERB is going to be transitioning to some sort of EI. Uh, I, I expect that there's still going to be a, a significant level of uh, um, uh, emergency support for, uh, uh, for people uh, still struggling out of work. But the government has uh, signaled that, they, that they'd like to shift things over to uh, a greater weight on the wage subsidy program, uh, where uh, people will be back at work and if employers are still struggling with, uh, with uh, revenues and businesses is still slow, then, uh, then the government is going to pick up some of the, uh, the wage tab um, for the workers uh, that employers hire. But, but that's really going to depend on employers accessing those programs and having those programs accessible. And, uh, and, and that, that's been um, a bit of a challenge uh, so far in the past few months. All right. So then, I mean, last month, I think the numbers were pleasing, right? People thought, okay, we're on the right track. Do you think that feeling mm-hmm. will hold tomorrow? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm slightly optimistic. Um, I, so I, I'm, I'm calling in from uh, Ontario, where uh, the June la- uh, job numbers actually, ha- we hadn't even started patio uh, restaurants uh, at, at that time. So there, there, there's clearly more uh, tailwinds to be caught mm-hmm. from from the, the, the reopening, and I, and I think. Uh, uh, it, th- th- that's probably going to be the case in l- lots of different parts of the country. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would be surprised if, uh, if the momentum is as strong as June. Uh, June might be the fastest growth uh, we see uh, over this recovery. All right. Bernard, uh, Brendan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Brendan Bernard, economist with Indeed.ca, giving us a preview of those July labor force survey numbers coming out tomorrow, which means it will be getting a look at what the jobs market and the job situation was like uh, in July. For BC, this is critical because, yeah, we did start to open things right right at the end of June. Uh, and there is a, more of a sense of normalcy perhaps here than in a few other provinces. So how will that impact those jobs numbers? We will, of course, have it for you right here. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in with our Nikki Reitmeyer this morning and talk about what's going on out there. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning. Well, as we speak, what's going on out there, it's absolutely pouring rain this morning. Yeah, I know. You know what? And it wasn't when I left the house. It was just kind of sprinkling. So I thought, oh, a few sprinkles. This is great. I am so almost, I'm relieved almost to see the rain this morning. How about you? I actually am a little bit too, especially because I've neglected to water the vegetable garden <gasps> over the last day or two. So, <laughs> so I, I was happy to wake up to see the rain this morning. Although I took the dogs for a walk and it was monsoon weather out there. It was so bad I had to tell them off when they got back up to the apartment again. I, I can't believe the rain that we're getting this morning. It. It's like it's been so dry for the past few weeks and all of a sudden now it, it, the skies are making up for it now. I know. I love it. And you know, last night it was funny you say that because I was out in South Delta. I was in Ladner doing an event uh, in the community and it was just such a beautiful evening, right? Just the kind of yeah. it's like almost it was almost like the kind of summer evening that people will write about. Like it was just so gorgeous and the wind was a, a hot wind blowing too. And it was just so beautiful. And I remember thinking in the car on the way home, well, this isn't going to last. Like this is, yeah, something's going to change. Last. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because, you know, last night as well, or yesterday afternoon, yesterday evening, I went to visit a friend in Gastown and we were sitting on a patio. I mean, yesterday I was sitting on a patio and now we have this monsoon rain. But uh, you know what? When we were sitting on that patio, I have to say, I could not believe what the scene is down in Gastown these days. I'd heard that it was getting worse. I heard that it was bad. As we sat on that patio, and I know it sounds very privileged to say, oh, you know, we were sitting on a patio and watching this, but there was not a, a minute that went by where you didn't see someone who was experiencing homelessness, someone who was clearly on drugs, someone, uh, there was a, there was one woman who sat, passed out in a doorway, just, you know, 20 feet down the street. There was a, a woman who walked by, and I kid you not, and this is very graphic, she literally, as we were sitting there, she had a, a, she tried to put a needle in her hand Ooh. As, as we were sitting Ooh. in Gastown. And this is directly across from the steam clock. We could see the steam clock from where we were. It was, it was sad. I mean, of course, it ended up dominating the conversation because it was so, uh, I think, shocking what we were seeing. And that's a part of town where certainly you do expect to see homelessness. It's been that way for a long time. It's nothing, I guess, unusual in that sense. But this was worse than I've ever seen Mm -hmm. it. And I know that I've heard downtown is getting worse. I've heard Granville Street is way worse. I've heard it from business owners on Granville Street. And this was, Simi, it was shocking yesterday. I, I believe that too, because, you know, we, you don't go through the kind of economic crisis that we have gone through in the last six months without seeing that impact somewhere. And, I, you know, you hear of it having an impact on the drug supply and, you know, that's another reason why it seems to be more visible or so they say or, you know, getting worse to some degree. They they recently actually did the annual homeless count, which they do every year. I'd be very curious to see the numbers if they did those those that count again today, because when they did this count, it was March uh, 3rd and 4th. So just kind of before the pandemic struck, because I think it was around St. Patrick's Day that we started to shut everything down. So this is just a little bit previous to that. Since then, I think it's certainly gotten much, much worse. And at that time, with the figures that they received from that count or the data they received from that count, they determined that homelessness has only increased since 2017 by about 30 people. And I thought, I I don't see that reflected around me at all. And, and, you know, this is anecdotal evidence because I'm not out there doing the count. But, I mean, even for you too, driving down downtown Mm -hmm. on a regular basis, it seems as though it has certainly increased more than just 30 people. 
I, I do wonder, though, you know, is there a difference between doing a homeless count in the middle of summer, kind of where we are, versus, say, in the middle of winter? Are people more likely to be housed if the weather is bad uh, versus yeah. when the weather is good? I just feel like there's so many questions. Also, there's just no doubt that this is kind of trickling down and impacting people. The question is, what do you what do you do about it? And also, some communities, I think, are seeing it far worse than they used to in years past. Yeah, no, I think you're right on all of those points. I mean, for example, when this count was conducted March 3rd and 4th, they noted that the extreme weather response shelters were open. So, you know, the total amount of homeless people that they are people experiencing homelessness that they counted was 3,634 people, which I said is about an increase of 30 people since 2017. A little over 1,000 people were unsheltered, so they counted them on the streets. But then 2,600 people were sheltered. But again, the emergency weather or the extreme weather response shelters mm-hmm. were open the night that they did the count. So, you know, that is, and I'm sure others were perhaps staying indoors elsewhere where they weren't exposed to this, this count. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's a part of it as well. And cities that were experiencing the highest number of homelessness, of course, it's no surprise. Uh, Vancouver was at the top of the list, 2,095 people. Surrey was number two, 644 people. Really? Langley was number three, 209 people. What? Surrey, Langley, Burnaby, the North Shore, and Richmond all saw increases in their homeless populations, but very small decreases were seen in the Tri-Cities, White Rock, New West, Delta, Ridge Meadows, and surprise, surprise, and I find this extremely shocking considering what I saw yesterday there was a small decrease, according hmm. to this count, in Vancouver. I'm very surprised to hear that Langley is number three on that list. I found that really shocking as well. I was, you know, surprised to see that Surrey was high, but you know, it is a very large city. So, and, and after having, you know, issues with the Wally Strip and so forth, I, I suppose it is somewhat believable. But yeah, Langley to have 209 homeless people, I also found found very surprising. I did too. It used to be that, I mean, it feels like it was just a few years ago we were talking about how even Burnaby had, remember the previous mayor got in trouble for saying there were no homeless people in in Burnaby, you know, because they were probably going to Vancouver and they had no homeless shelters there. Uh, So that is pretty evenly, I would think, dispersed all over the lower mainland. The question is, what what do we do about it? Uh, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some of the stories you've been hearing in the news in the last 24 hours. And a big one has to do with a vaccine for COVID-19. How many times have we heard the phrase that, oh, we can't get back to normal until there is a vaccine? But there's all these conflicting timelines as to when that could happen. We've heard maybe by the end of this year, we've heard, oh, 2021. Then we've heard other people say, well, it may not happen, you know, for the next couple of years. Regardless, preparations are underway for governments all over the world to make sure that their citizens, their people, will have access to a vaccine. That is why the Canadian government yesterday signed some new deals with a couple of pharmaceutical firms. They did this with Pfizer and they did it with Moderna, and they're doing it to make sure that they can secure millions of doses next year for these potential vaccines that those companies are developing. We are going to be talking more about that now with our guest, Dr. Catherine Hankins, who's a professor of population and public health at McGill University. Thank you for being back with us. 
pleased to be with you, Simi. So how significant is this? Does this mean that these two companies have a very good shot at producing a vaccine? Um, this is called manufacturing at risk in a sense. That's what, what they're doing is they're moving from their early trials into the big trials. And there are actually six companies and vaccines that are moving forward. Um, we've got two that are in these big trials, a third one starting shortly, and more to come. So instead of doing it in a very linear fashion, the way we've always done vaccines, sorry, I've got, sorry about that noise there, the way we've always done vaccines, we're trying to fast track things. And it's quite amazing to be planning to go into production before the vaccine is known to be effective. And then secondly, it's an amazing situation where we have our government already lining up to purchase vaccines, which I think is a very smart move. Right. Is this something that countries everywhere are doing? If they have the resources, they're doing it, because otherwise you're going to end up uh, at the end of the line if there is a vac- an effective vaccine. And I think we're all a bit concerned about something that's called vaccine nationalism, where you only (laughs) provide for your own country first. In fact, I was really concerned about that for Moderna because I knew all of the sites where it's being tested are in the U.S. And we'd heard about that, right? I think the president had been quite forceful in saying that he actually, there was one attempt that the Americans even made to buy a company in Germany that was making progress on a vaccine. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think on the one hand, coming back over and over and over again to this idea of solidarity, global solidarity, and then secondly, making sure as we're doing, we're trying to get enough for our own people, which is good. So does this ensure that, but as long as one of these companies has a successful vaccine? I don't know if it ensures it, but it's an advanced market purchase that I would think Uh, increases by a lot our chances. These are contracts that are going to be deliverable. Right. How many potential vaccines are there out there right now? Oh, I think there's like, I don't know, 140, 150 candidates. I think there are, you know, and the candidates go through testing in the lab and then they, you know, they're not even going sort of the usual way is lab testing and then some kind of animal testing, mouse and maybe into monkeys and so on and so forth, and then into humans. We're going right into humans with quite a few of these. And then based on what we're seeing in the early trial, the early trial, the first one is called phase one. It's for safety, just to make sure there are no uh, bad safety signals there. And if that looks good, it goes into a second phase, the phase two trials, which are larger trials, not huge, like maybe mm-hmm. 50 people, maybe a little bit more. And they're looking for safety. They're looking to see if there's any little bit of a signal, uh, you know, are you getting an immune response? Does it matter if you have one dose or two doses? And then the phase three are usually 30,000 people. And they're being done in places where the epidemic is not in control. So, you know, like the Oxford vaccine, that's being done in uh, the UK, in South Africa, and in Brazil, Moderna in the US, and we know the story there. So they have a, a chance of really getting results as quickly as possible when the epidemic's not under control. Hopefully. Uh, thank you so much for being with us this morning. You're welcome. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, there's a lot going on behind the scenes out at Vancouver International Airport these days. They've had three screening officers test positive for COVID-19. That's among 700 officers that they have there out at YVR. Now, it hasn't affected screening operations, but obviously that heightens things even more at an airport that has been kind of scrambling to understand and adjust to what is happening in this pandemic. And there's a relatively new boss at the helm, too. It's former Van City Credit Union head Tamara Room and just moved into the job just before this pandemic hit. And she joins us now to talk more about what is happening out at the airport. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Simi. What have the last six months been like for you? Well, uh, I've been at uh, YBR actually since the beginning of, of July, so just one month. Uh, and it's been, a, it's been a very, a very busy time. You know, uh, we're the best uh, airport in North America for over a decade, not only because we run a great airport, but because we put people at the heart of everything we do. And as we respond to COVID, that hasn't stopped. It's only accelerated. So everything from the cleaning protocols we put in to new technology uh, to help keep people who are traveling and the people who work at the airport uh, 100% safe. Now, I have been out at the airport, so I know all about, like, you know, what the rules are. And I saw everybody wearing a mask and there's lots of hand sanitizer. What happened in the case of these three screening officers? Yeah, the three screening officers are actually employees of uh, G4S Security contracted to CATSA working at our airport. And G4S Security has uh, great uh, protocols right across the country uh, with their staff. And so what happened is these three uh, were... uh, infected uh, outside of work, but the the protocols were very, very good in place in terms of the plexiglass, the gloves, the hand washing, and the masks that we see in many, many contexts. So we were just talking to the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority uh, yesterday, and they have confirmed that the risk to the public is uh, virtually nil because of the protocols that have been put in place. Okay, that's good then. Moving forward, does this heighten kind of what is happening there? Does this reinforce to you that, listen, we're doing the right thing here? It absolutely does. And I think we're all learning to live with COVID. And one of the things that we have at the airport is, I think it's because so few people have been traveling, uh, Simi, it's one of the best kept secrets. We all know what a grocery store looks like in COVID or what a hair salon looks like in COVID, but we don't really uh, can't always imagine what an airport looks like in COVID. And, you know, safety and security is our business. Mm-hmm. And we screen at multiple points, as we all know, uh, for for safety and security. And we're doing exactly the same thing when it comes to health. So there's health checks when you check in. There's masks and gloves. There's extra cleaning. We actually are also, are, uh, your listeners might not know, we uh, actually invented the check-in kiosk and the border check-in. Uh, screening kiosk. And so we've been able to, at our manufacturing facility, install ultraviolet uh, cleaning technology, which means that every one of our machines is cleaned after every single use. So we're not only putting the basic protocols in, we're continuing to innovate and lead our Mm -hmm. industry as we put technology in place to uh, protect the public. How busy is it these days? Are things ramping up a little bit more at the airport? Certainly there are a few more people traveling, uh, really for two reasons, what we're calling uh, repatriation flights. So uh, many flights uh, outbound from YVR, a big 380, would have 600 passengers uh, flying out once a week to China, only 60 coming back. though. And what that is, is since the universities and colleges have announced that they'd be mostly online, we're seeing a lot of international students uh, return home. So that's uh, creating some volume. And then what I'm calling reunion flights. So these are Canadians 
who maybe they haven't seen their parents in Toronto since Christmas, and they think, you know, now's the time for me to go out and, and see them. Maybe they have a rec property in northern Alberta, and they want to get out of the city and take their family there for the summer. Those kinds of trips, but certainly volume is uh, is down where, where uh, it would have been a year ago, but it's up a little bit since the spring. So I did. I couldn't help but notice when I was out there that th- there's still a lot of construction going on, right? There's the yeah. giant parkade. There's the revamping of the domestic terminal. Are those things all full speed ahead? Do you do you expect the economy to recover? Well, certainly we uh, expect the recon- uh, the economy to recover. The question is really just when. And so those infrastructure projects are a, a key part of why we are going forward. The one that you see when you drive into the terminal. Uh, all of those, that concrete sitting there, that's really about a new uh, a district energy system that allows us to significantly reduce our carbon footprint at the airport by providing uh, energy to the full terminal, as well as consolidating uh, some water use to protect the wetlands that uh, are around and recycle water, and then consolidating parking closer to the terminal, more convenient for passengers, allows us to free up the land where we have surface parking elsewhere on Sea Island to put it to a higher value use. So those are all things that probably we will need a little bit uh, later in the future than we would have before COVID, but we'll certainly need them. And so we're proceeding with those. Right. So do you think things will start to ramp up a little bit? Well, certainly uh, economically, we can see uh, signs uh, as kids go back to school and as uh, people get used to working and living uh, with COVID, we're seeing more. In our business, uh, you know, we were the first to to shut down and we will be Mm -hmm. slow to increase until really the quarantines uh, are lifted or, uh, or the border uh, opens, but in the meantime, we're having conversations uh, with uh, places like uh, Sydney, Australia, and others where they have similar patterns in terms of uh, COVID safety and security as we have here in Canada around the potential to potentially have a bubble or a corridor potentially maybe from Vancouver to Sydney in the winter. Oh, interesting. Okay, so there could be a potential for some partnerships there to say you can go from here to here safely. That's right. We see that in other parts of the world. We don't yet uh, we don't yet see that uh, between Canada, but we think now's a good time to start exploring what those would look like, how we could safely introduce the kinds of protocols at both ends that would allow Canadians that might not be able to go uh, south to the U.S. or to the Caribbean as they normally would, but maybe a trip to Australia and certainly the other direction. Australia is coming to uh, mm-hmm. British Columbia. It's really uh, great for our economy in the winter, not only up at Whistler, as we know, but through to uh, Sun Peaks in and uh, Big White in the interior and through to the Rockies as well. It's a really big part of our tourism in the winter. So, so then, Tamara, for people coming out to the airport for whatever reason, picking somebody up or going on a domestic uh, flight, what do they need to remember? Yeah, they need to remember the things that we're all getting used to remembering uh, in COVID that absolutely Uh, wear a mask, stay six feet uh, apart wherever uh, possible, and really try to uh, limit the time that you're spending in the terminal. The terminal is open, it's clean, we're welcoming uh, 10,000 passengers a day through our terminal at the moment, but really we're trying to make sure that that's available for people who work there and for who those, those who are traveling. We ask that people uh, who are dropping people off or welcoming loved ones back that you uh, stay out this uh, side this terminal on the curb. All right. Well, Tamara, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Simi.
as Tamara Vrooman, who's the CEO of YVR, just started in the job at the beginning of July, so about a month. Can you imagine walking into a huge job like that just in the middle of all of this going on? Uh, so yes, challenging could be definitely one word to describe it. Uh, so they had three screening officers who tested positive for COVID-19, and as you heard her say, it has been addressed there is, they said, little to no you know, problem for the general public who may have gone through there. They've got all their safety protocols in place. But again, the airport right now is a challenging business. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's hard to believe it, but when you see the headline, you think, is this possible? An, an uptake in real estate sales this past month. In fact, numbers reaching even higher than they did at this time last year. What is going on and what is selling? So we thought we'd talk a little bit about the real estate market right now. Joining us is Jason Turcott, the VP of Development at Cressy Development Group. Jason, thanks for being here. My pleasure. What is selling out there? Well, it looks like a little bit of everything. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it seems like uh, single-family and, and townhome product might be leading the charge a little bit, and I think there's some specific reasons for that. But, uh, you know, strong sales across the board, all, all, uh, all product types. Yeah. Are you surprised by that? Yes and no. I think we, you know, it, it sort of seems to be uh, against the grain in terms of, uh, you know, the, the economic conditions, you know, that are, that are resulting from the, the pandemic here. But I also think what we're seeing is, is historically low rate, interest rates, uh, uh, some pent-up demand, uh, you know, still a very desirable place to be. No one's leaving, right? So the numbers coming in are certainly slowing as right. far as uh, new immigrants. But no one's leaving, and people are uh, on the sidelines looking to take advantage of uh, some cheap interest rates and uh, perhaps having sat there a little while through what was a little bit of a tougher market last year, uh, waiting to get back in. Pent-up demand, I think, as you mentioned, there has a lot to do with this as well, because it seems like the market was very quiet for a long time as people were waiting to see things, how shake out. Do you think they're just tired of waiting? A little bit. I mean, I think if we go back pre, uh, pre-COVID uh, slowdown to the early part of, of 2020, we were on track for a, a really good first quarter of the year. And, and 2019 was, was not a great year. Um, so when we compare it to July numbers of last year, I'm not at all surprised that they're up. In spite of uh, in spite of what's going on, um, but we were off to a good start, and then of course uh, I think everybody sort of just uh, you know understandably took a took a uh, spot on the sideline as things were kind of going crazy through March and April, and then I think as as things here specifically in the Lower Mainland and in British Columbia started to feel a little better through May and into June, people started to get into that back into that psychology of of buying, and of course those take. You know, that process often takes uh, 30, 60, 90 days. And so I think what you saw is as people got comfortable through May and June, uh, transactions kind of bumped up in the month of July. There. Right. It must be hard, though, for developers like Cressy, too, because it sounds like the market is very difficult to predict. And if projects take a couple of years to come to fruition, how do you know what people want? Well, I think that's what we're seeing right now uh, with a major shift in, in, in new product towards smaller buildings, townhomes specifically, 
Um, so what, you, what, what you'll notice on those stats, which I think might be indicative a little bit of, of what's going on from a new development perspective, is that the, the attached apartment stuff was the lowest of the three categories in, in increase. Because, you know, as we look to mitigate risk in what you, you, know, what you described there accurately is a pretty uncertain and unpredictable time. Smaller projects that are that are phasable, um, you can you can sell in chunks or build in chunks, like townhome and you know certainly single family. Although there's not much of it to be had out there, uh, are more manageable from a risk perspective. Um, and so a lot of focus in our industry and, and our company specifically has switched away from you know the big high rise, uh, hundreds of units at a time to smaller, more uh, bite sized developments. And so that's also been a little bit of the the trend in those stats where I think that's most of the new right. product that people have seen. And so it's reflecting as well in those sales numbers. Interesting. Would you say like, you know, developers did that out of necessity, right? To manage kind of the financial risk. And at the same time, now you're finding that that's in demand. Absolutely. I think, I think it was the trend that was already happening. As I mentioned back through 2019, I mean, the slowdown in big pre-sale condos was very evident. Uh, so but I think the industry was already going in that direction. And then of course you look at, the impact that COVID has on somebody's buying psychology and the idea of having maybe your own front door, whether it be a single family or a townhome and, you know, maybe not sharing common spaces as much, certainly I think probably drove some buyers towards that product type versus potentially a, a condo or an apartment with, with where they're sharing some of those common spaces and elevators, et cetera. So I think, yeah, I mean, it, it did sort of work out from that perspective, but yeah, I think the trend started much earlier than COVID and it just, uh, it sort of suited the marketplace. What does that mean for square footage, though, Jason? Because I know, you know, with those, some of those condos, it was just impossible for people to actually downsize into, you know, 800 square feet or whatever if they wanted to get out of their single-family home. Are we seeing square footage in some of these multifamily dwellings inch up? In some, uh, we've, you know, we've had really good success. Uh, at, you know, when you really commit to a downsizer, um, uh, type of apartment or condo, uh, you do need to give them some space. Uh, and that with that comes affordability challenges for sure, where I think you might have some better affordability are in some of the wood frame apartment buildings that are getting built now, a little cheaper to build. Like I say, they're a little smaller, less risk for a developer and offer some great value. Uh, and then certainly in townhome, there's a, there's a lot of younger downsizers that still have, uh, you know, have their uh, physical fitness and have no problem with a few stairs. And so townhomes seem to be a real attractive downsizing option too, and, and give you that little bit more space. Is there a lot of room for down for townhomes out there? There seems to be, yeah. Lo- you know, um, there's there's been some pockets of, of uh, significant uh, new townhome development. You know, the North Shore in particular has a couple of areas, Moodyville and, and where we have a project down in Lionsgate Village of uh, 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 several new townhome projects. And there's other areas around too where, like I say, the, the attention that got shifted into townhome from developers um, was, was pretty um, obvious. And so you've seen some of these neighborhoods, you know, like in Coquitlam as well, up on Burke Mountain, several new townhome communities offering a bunch of new product to the market. So yeah, there's, there's lots of new product out there and I think there's more to come. And, and yet summer is supposed to normally be the quiet season, is it not? Typically, if you go way back, yeah, I mean, if, we, if we really take a historical look, but in the, in the more recent uh, time frame of, uh, you know, say 10, 10 or 15 years, the summer has remained pretty active. Um, August typically is the slower of the two summer months by a pretty significant margin. So we'll see how this month shapes up. But uh, yeah, it, it seemed to uh, buck that trend over the past 10 years. It's been pretty active. We'll see. All right, Jason, thank you. 
You're welcome. That's Jason Turcott, VP of Development at Cressy Development Group, uh, commenting on the huge uptick that we saw in real estate sales over the past month, numbers even reaching higher for July 2020 than they did in July of 2019. Maybe it's pent-up demand. People just couldn't wait anymore. Interest rates are low. If people felt that their jobs were okay, they decided to make that move they had been thinking about. In particular, townhome sales up more than 30% in the month of July. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been hearing in the news in the last 24 hours or so that the federal government has announced that they are making deals with a couple of different pharmaceutical companies in the hopes that one of them will produce a a good COVID-19 vaccine. They're called vaccine candidates at this point. Well, one of the ones that they're talking about is also based right here in Vancouver. It's Acutus Therapeutics. Let's talk to the president and CEO, Dr. Thomas Madden, about that. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. What does it mean to be a vaccine candidate? Uh, It means that the vaccine is still uh, being studied in clinical trials uh, to determine its safety and effectiveness. Okay, so how promising, we've we've talked to you about this before, I know, Dr. Madden, you've been on the show, but how promising is the particular vaccine that Acutis is working on? Um, So uh, one of the partners we're working with is BioNTech, who are partnered with Pfizer, um, and they have shown in, in clinical trials to date that the vaccine is able to um, activate both parts of our immune system. And so the clinical data is encouraging. Uh, it also appears to be uh, well tolerated. So uh, at this point, the clinical trials are now looking at whether the vaccine can protect people who are exposed to COVID-19 from contracting the disease. So even though it's still kind of in that promising stage, what does it mean then to have this deal with the Canadian government? What do the Canadian people get out of this? Uh, Well, I think what you're seeing is several governments are um, um, pre-purchasing vaccine candidates um, and uh, in most cases, purchasing more than one uh, in the uh, hope that uh, uh, some or all of these will receive regulatory approval and then can then be used um, to to vaccinate their populations. And the Canadian government obviously is is looking to secure supplies at this time um, in the, with the, the concern probably that um, uh, supplies are going to be limited. So when you say supplies are limited by how much, like what is the Canadian government signing up for here? Uh, that we don't know. The, the number of doses that they've purchased uh, hasn't been disclosed. Um, uh, so that's, that, that remains a question. Um, what's interesting is uh, both of the um, vaccine candidates that they are pre-purchasing are both uh, using new technology, messenger RNA technology, um, uh, and, and both have shown encouraging clinical data um, uh, so far. So how do, what is that new technology and how is it different from the way we currently get a vaccine? Uh, conventional vaccines are often uh, the virus itself, uh, either that's been killed or it's been attenuated so it doesn't cause disease. Um, these new messenger RNA vaccines are, are interesting because what, the, what they provide is a message uh, to ourselves uh, to tell ourselves to make Uh, a single uh, protein found in the virus. Our immune system is then able to recognize this protein and protect us, hopefully, from future exposure to the the virus. Um, uh, It's uh, a a new technology because it's much simpler uh, than conventional vaccines um, and has the promise 
uh, to be able to be developed uh, more rapidly than conventional vaccines. So is it safe to say that with this vaccine, then it's your body that is doing the fighting as opposed, your, as opposed to repelling just the vaccine? It's your, it's your body that's actually uh, uh, making the, the viral protein that our immune system then um, recognizes. Um, and whereas with a conventional um, vaccine, there are many proteins that may be present um, against which the immune system uh, could be stimulated. In this case, we're selecting one that we think is the most uh, relevant uh, protein in the virus and our immune system is then generating response against that. And, and Dr. Madden, what do you think about the timeline here? This seems to be the most critical thing. How soon can we see production ramped up on this? Um, so that, of course, is is the, the, the huge question um, that all of the uh, vaccine candidates uh, are having to consider, is, is how quickly can they manufacture sufficient doses um, to be able to treat uh, everybody who wants to be vaccinated? Um, and I don't think it's... Um, uh, a, coinc- a coincidence that um, Dr. Tam has commented that we need to temper our expectations around uh, whether a vaccine will be a, a silver bullet. And I think this is uh, based to some extent on the fact that um, uh, it will take many, many months to manufacture sufficient doses um, for, for everyone. And, and um, uh, whether those many months are 12 months or 18 months or longer, at this point, we, we really don't have the answer to that. And so it's not going to be a case where once a vaccine is approved, then within a few short weeks, everybody can be vaccinated and hopefully we're able to move out of the current pandemic situation. It will take uh, a period of time for that to be able to happen. So you've probably heard that when people think that. I think there are people who believe that, oh, you know what, we'll get a vaccine in the next six months and everything will be fine. And you're saying that's just unrealistic. Yes, I think it's it's unrealistic in in terms of of how quickly uh, the vaccine can be made widely available. And and while uh, we're having to sort of gradually vaccinate the population, we're going to need to continue to um, uh, use the same precautions we do now, wearing masks and physically distancing, um, until a sufficient proportion of the population is vaccinated uh, that we uh, that will would be uh, uh, able to say we have herd immunity. All right, Dr. Madden, thank you for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's fascinating. It's Dr. Thomas Madden, President and CEO of Acutus Therapeutics. They are actually working with Pfizer. They're one of those vaccine candidates that the Canadian government signed a deal with. Hopeful, yes, but you can hear there's a few caveats in there, especially when it comes to the timeline. This is Mornings with Simi. I think there's still plenty of time, and I think whoever gets elected, be it uh, Aaron or Peter or Leslin, uh, they're going to, uh, three weeks, be right out of the gates going after uh, the Liberals in terms of accountability. So that was former Stephen Harper campaign manager Jenny Byrne. She spoke with us on the program earlier this week, talking about the conservative leadership race. Well, the candidate Aaron O'Toole is one of the front runners in this campaign, as she just mentioned there, and he joins us now to talk more about his vision for the party and what's been happening. Uh, good morning, and thank you for being here. It's good to be back. Thank you. So how, how does this race feel at this point, given that it's already taken a couple of months longer than you probably thought it was going to? Uh, I, certainly my family, by the day, asked me how many more days left in this leadership race, uh, but it, it was appropriate for us to put a pause you know the whole country was coming together under 
a very difficult stand, uh, circumstances with COVID-19. So we did extend it. It's going to end at the end of the summer as opposed to the beginning of the summer. Um, and I, uh, I'm very excited about how the, the campaign is ending. We're having a lot of momentum, but it has been long and all families have been through some challenging times, uh, ours included. Yeah, what kind of an impact did the pandemic have on it? Did it change kind of people's focus? Was it harder to get people's attention? Well, you know what? No. What was really fascinating, you know, in the last race, I was out in B.C. eight times. I came to B.C. more than any other candidate. I was there the first day of my campaign. Um, This time, I only got out once and got to the Lower Mainland and to the Okanagan. And B.C. is very important to our party. But this time, I've actually spoken with probably 10 times the members of our party directly through technology, through mainly some of the Zoom calls we've had. I've done about 500 Zoom meetings and town halls and teletown halls. So I've actually answered more direct questions from members than ever before. And so it's changed. um, And and I think actually it's allowed me to be more accountable. I've heard directly from more grassroots members from coast to coast to coast. So we all pivoted. And I think our campaign pivoted very, very well. And it's let me learn a lot about what's on the mind of Canadians. And what is on the mind of Canadians, do you think? Um, obviously, COVID and uncertainty about uh, about employment, the economy, these sorts of things. But I'll tell you, even before that, there was a real worry that after several years of Trudeau, the country's divided. You know, we've got the Wexit movement in Alberta and Saskatchewan. We had Warren Buffett pulling out his investment from Canada because of illegal rail blockades. There was a real sense that the Liberals were eroding the ability for Canada to get things done, to build things here, to think big. Uh, and to to have projects that can employ thousands of Canadians. So I think there's a real sense that we have to get back to putting Canadians first, putting uh, putting jobs and the ability for uh, mom or dad to provide for their kids at the centre of what government does, as opposed to the sort of symbolic virtue signalling we see from Justin Trudeau. Certainly Conservatives are very, very sick of the divisive ideological approach of the Trudeau government. So then what would you have done differently if you were in charge this time? Well, I I actually proposed in February to close the borders and to actually create the EI system to respond to employment outages. And see me, what's interesting, when I used the term Canada needed to adopt a war footing at the end of February, early March, to prepare, use the Canadian Armed Forces for our health system, I was mocked by the Liberals. There was a newspaper article saying, oh, look at Aaron O'Toole's rhetoric. And a month later, <laughs> we were deploying the Canadian Armed Forces to long-term care in, in Ontario and Quebec. So the policies I was advocating for were about a month ahead of the government. And the real challenge with COVID-19 was they really botched the assistance programs for businesses. The wage subsidy was first introduced at just 10%. No one was going to save jobs at their company for 10%. Uh, the, re- the rent program was very poorly handled by Ottawa. So we see higher unemployment and more people on the CERB because of a very slow and, and confused response on the economy. Mm-hmm. And I tried to help. I spoke to Morneau personally, uh, Champagne personally. Uh, they did listen. They did increase the wage subsidy to 75%, but they're There's been a real disconnect with this government and the needs of our private sector. So moving forward then, I mean, if you are elected, you know, holding holding the government to account, what suggestions would you make about moving Canadians off these systems and getting things back up and running? 
great question because we have to do that. In fact, the CERB is impacting retail jobs, service level jobs in BC and Ontario. A lot of people are saying they don't want to even work part full time until the CERB is eliminated. So we have to do, we have to roll these programs down. And what we have to do as a country is value work. In fact, blue collar families across the country are wondering what industry Justin Trudeau is going to attack next. He's canceled pipelines. He brought in Bill C-69. He told Ontario families that Ontario has to move past manufacturing. I kind of wonder, does Justin Trudeau realize without a healthy private sector, including resource jobs, including manufacturing, uh, we don't have a strong economy. We don't have GDP growth that allows us to have healthcare and old age security. So we need to eliminate the ideological approach we've seen from the Trudeau government um, on on resource development. I'm going to make a priority to finalize a softwood lumber deal with the Americans. Uh, we've seen seven mills close in BC in the last couple of years alone. We also have to renegotiate some of our trade arrangements to make ourselves more self-sufficient, uh, focus on, on competitiveness in steel and aluminum. I've been talking about this for a number of years. I mm-hmm. will do it as opposition leader and prime minister. Uh, let me also just quickly ask you, the last conservative leadership race resulted in quite a divided party, uh, lots of divisive issues within the party itself. If you don't win the leadership, will you support whoever is elected leader? Yes, just like I did last time. I came third last time, see me, and we remember what Maxine Bernier, who came second last time, did. I was the foreign affairs shadow minister for Andrew Scheer, and was very loyal. I am a current MP, so I'm I'm invested. I'm committed to serving my community in this country. Mr. McKay and Ms. Lewis are not members of Parliament, so they will, if they win, they would have to find a seat. I think it would be disastrous for us as a party to not have a leader in the House for the first debates after COVID in September. But I'm a committed Conservative. I will work very hard to making sure our party and all parts of it are united. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Good to speak with you. Appreciate that. That's Aaron O'Toole, Conservative leadership candidate. As that race starts to wind up in the next couple of weeks, it did get extended because of COVID-19. As you heard there, it is kind of coming down to the wire as well with two particularly strong candidates out front and a surprising candidate, Liz and Lewis, also coming up uh, and getting a lot of traction in the last little while. So we'll keep you posted on how that one goes for sure.